to be the temple your purpose in this pilgrimage is to worship and your motivation is thanksgiving for all that god has done for you and for your family and for your people and when you leave home and you're making that pilgrimage to jerusalem you're focused and intent on lifting your heart to heaven and exalting the most high god as your all in all but the journey is long and the path is torturous and the sun is hot and the road is dusty, and it's tough and difficult. Your muscles are tired, and the animal that you're bringing to Jerusalem for the sacrifice is burdensome, and the caravan that you're traveling in is noisy. You left home with holy intentions to worship, but now you're tired, and you're thirsty, and you're frustrated over your travel, and you begin to ask the question, why did I leave home again to go through all of this? You can't answer the question because you've lost sight of the reason of why you were heading to Jerusalem in the first place. If you were at home, you could be relaxing, you could be spending time with the family, enjoying your favorite hobby, or maybe even doing a little work on the side to make an extra buck. You're tempted to go back. But you've already come this far, you might as well press on. And so you continue, and finally you come, remember you're a pilgrim in Israel, and you finally come upon the holy city of Jerusalem. And as you enter within earshot of that city, you hear a noise, a joyful, beautiful, harmonious noise. And as you reach the gates of that city, you see the source of that joyful sound. There are greeters there waiting for you. And they do not greet you with a handshake or a hug. They lift up a song. They greet you with a song of praise and rejoicing to the God of heaven. And as the words of the song sink in, your frustrations vanish and your doubt disappears and your strength returns. You regain your focus on what it means to worship God. You have come to worship him and to make a joyful noise as unto the Lord. You begin to sing and dance before your God with a heart full of thanksgiving and of praise. Well, I believe that this is the very well way that many thousands of pilgrims would have experienced what they experienced in their journey to Jerusalem. It's not easy sometimes coming to that place of worship. Sometimes our pilgrimage is tough. And hundreds of us, as we go to church every Sunday to worship him, might face some of those same difficulties. It could be easy for us to lose the sight, uh, lose sight of the purpose of coming to the place of worship. It, it could be easy for us to be distracted by the burdens of our week or by our exhaust, uh, exhaustion from our studies or by the relationships that you're struggling with meandering through in your life. Am I going to get married to this person or am I not? Right? These pilgrims, just as we are, need to be making our place and our way to worship, and we need to sometimes not forget about why we're coming. And that's what Psalm 100 is all about today. If, if you want to know how to worship God and to give him thanks, this psalmist is saying, let me show you the way. Let me remind you about what it's all about. The whole point of Psalm 100 is to remind you that it is your duty to give thanks to God. It is your duty to give thanks to God for who he is and for what he has done for you. Thanksgiving is a duty. 
It's not a day on the calendar. It's not a set of circumstances. It's not a particular mood that you have at any given time. You have a responsibility to give thanks to God for who he is and what he has done for you. And that's why in this psalm, Psalm 100, we're going to look just quickly at seven imperatives that we see here in the psalm that are imploring you, begging you, commanding you to give thanks. Let's look at these seven duties or imperatives of giving thanks together. The first one is this. Verse 1 talks about shout joyfully to the Lord. He says, make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth there in verse 1. And this phrase, to make a joyful noise, literally means to shout. It is to make a loud and joyful announcement in triumph. This is the, the homage or fanfare given to a king. This shout is one of loyalty ascribed to a, uh, by a subject to his sovereign. Uh, the psalmist is saying that it is time to fill the air with an eruption of praise to God. He is saying here, in essence, in verse 1, church worship shouldn't be like sitting in a doctor's office. I think the quietest place in America is the waiting room of a doctor's office or a dentist's office before you go in to be seen. You, you come in, you sit there quietly, you sign your name on a clipboard, and then you start looking at your phone or looking at the magazines, and it's just nice and quiet. Well, that's not how church worship is supposed to be, right? I mean, this psalm commands us to make a joyful noise into the Lord, right? Everyone here is called into action. It's not like being quiet like you would at a funeral. This is a place of praise. And so when you come before God, you ought to come before him with shouts of joyful praise. You know, I would say to you, it's a sad thing to be in an all-white church. That's a sad place to me. You know why? Because white people are just too stoic and too stiff. And when I was in Uganda this past Sunday in worship, let me tell you, there was some movement in the room. And there was a little bit of swaying in the room. And there was a little bit of holy shaking going on in the room. And you know what? I liked it. I appreciate the fact that we ought to come into the presence of God with rejoicing. That's Hebrew culture. That's Ugandan culture. I think we should make it part of our American church culture. And it is already in our brothers and sisters sometimes in an African-American church. Right? Is that okay if we get a little unstiff here at Masters University? Is that okay, Ashoff? We do a little holy shakedown before the Lord. Ashoff's for it. He's for it. I mean, I'm just saying here, I mean, do you remember the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday when Jesus came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey? What did Jesus say? I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. You see, Christ expects, and this psalm demands, the fact that we would shout out to him. And when we do it at a ball game, we, we, we erupt in applause at a movie. Uh, we respond with glee it, with any type of good news. But then we sit in church all stoic and stiff. What is that? I mean, the Bible says in Psalm 95, 1, Oh, let us come, let us sing to the Lord, let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Psalm 98, 4 says, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth in joyous song and sing praise. The joyful sound that is commanded in those verses and here in Psalm 100 
can be ordered by God because it is not based on how you feel, but on how you should respond to the king. Joy is not the same thing as happiness. Happiness is based on what happens. Happiness is a thing-centered, people-centered, event-centered emotion. Happiness can be fickle and faint. But joy, in the Bible, joy comes in the morning every day because in the Christian who has been saved by grace experiences every day the steadfastness of the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. Right? Joy, real joy, is not thing-centered, people-centered, or even event-centered. Joy is God-centered, Christ-centered, and Holy Spirit-centered. And this is why we have joy no matter what we're going through, because no matter what shifts or changes in your life, God's nature and His character and His promises remain the same. They are unmoved by the events of this world. They are unmoved by the election. They are unmoved by the weather. They are unmoved by the score of the game. Right? God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There's no shifting shadow or hiding with the Most High. He is above all. He can be seen through all, and He will be exalted in all. He is in charge, and His character is unchanging. And He cares for you, and He loves you. And he's committed to you. And he's the ruler of heaven and on earth. And because he is who he is, it ought to compel us to make a joyful noise. In worship, the creature comes before his creator. The infinite, uh, come, I should say the finite, rather, right, comes before the infinite. Uh, the weak comes before the omnipotent. The foolish comes before the all-wise. And the sinner comes before the holy. Worship is serious business. There is nothing trivial or trite about worshiping God. God is triumphant. God is victorious. He is our all-conquering king. Notice as well that this is a call for all the earth to participate in. People out of every culture and out of every background, pagans are told to drop their worship of dead idols and come to the Lord of all the earth. There is a mission emphasis in this psalm to call people all over the world out of darkness and out of mysticism and out of bondage to legalism to come and to worship freely and to shout joyfully before our great God. And there are a lot of Christians that think that it is important that we worship, but that it doesn't matter how we worship. And this psalm shows us how to worship. This psalm says it's something that we're engaged in. It's something that we're bodily moved by. It's a response that's elicited from the character of our God. This is the way in which we are to worship God and how we worship God matters. And so the next duty of giving thanks we see here is to number two serve the lord with gladness so remember we're looking at seven imperatives this morning concerning our worship we are called to number one make a joyful noise and now number two to serve the lord with 
gladness. You see it there in verse 2, serve the Lord with gladness, and then it says come into his presence with singing. Let's talk about the first part of verse 2, to serve the Lord with gladness. The word serve here could also be translated as worship. It's the same word used in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12, and now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all of his ways, to love him, and to serve the Lord your God. The same word, we're called to serve the Lord our God with all of our heart and with all of our soul. And so we could say that to worship God is to ascribe worth or value to him And to serve him means that you understand God's infinite worth and his value. And so your response to that, your response to who he is, is you fear him. And you obey him. And you love him. And you serve him with all that you are. That is true service. That's true worship. It's like Romans 12.1, where Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And so to serve the Lord is to worship the Lord. And God expects you to be an active participant in worship. Worship is not a spectator sport. You do know, don't you, that just because you sit through a worship service doesn't mean that you actually took part in worship. If your mind is not focused, and if your heart is not engaged, and if the songs that are sung are not something that you personalize, that I want to sing to God for saving my soul. That every time I sing to God, I just reach out my hands to him. And I'm not saying you have to hold up your hands. You know, it's really more of a posture of the heart. But the idea is every time I sing something about God, I just want to reach out to him. And then every time I sing something about a sinner, I'm just like, that's me. Like, that's me. I'm a wretch. I'm a sinner. And yet he saved me from so much. So I can't help but to worship and to be engaged in that part of our service when we're singing songs. And we can worship when we hear the preaching. It's not just the service. We know that. The singing is part of worship. But worship is a lifestyle. And so you can worship by letting the word of God penetrate your heart and convict your soul and to help you think rightly. And this could easily be happening on every Sunday, right? If you're not careful, again, you might come to church and you think you're in worship, but you weren't in worship. And why weren't you in worship? Because if you sit through a worship service and later somebody asks you, how worship was, sometimes we start to fall into the trap of rating other people's worship. You ever notice that? It's like Sunday's over, you're driving back from church, and you know you see someone else in the calf, or later in the day, how was worship today? Well, and you start to rate everything that happened in the service. Well, the music was okay, or it was too loud, or we didn't sing enough praise and worship songs, or I like hymns better, or the sermon was good, but... If I was John MacArthur, I wouldn't have said this. I would have said that and that and the other. He totally missed this point. And before you know it, what are you doing? You're critiquing other people's worship. And so somebody says, how is worship? I think a better response is like, you know what? God showed me more of himself today. I learned a new thing about God today, or I was reminded about an attribute of God today. Worship was awesome because God's name was exalted. Instead of us critiquing, again, special music, the sermon, 
the temperature or what have you, whatever it was that happened in that service today, right? Worship, again, it's not a spectator sport. It's something that you participate in. The command here in this psalm is that you worship, you serve, you make a joyful noise. Nobody can worship for you. You have to worship for yourself. And worshiping takes your focus off of others and places it on the greatness of God. Verse 2 of this psalm also says that we're to serve the Lord in, in what way? It says with gladness. That God cares, again, how we serve him or worship him. In that he wants us to worship or serve him joyfully, gladly, and willingly. God doesn't want us to come to worship grudgingly. Oh no, I've got to go to chapel again. Oh man. Oh no, it's Sunday, I've got to go to church. And to be a good Christian, I should probably also go to Sunday school. It's like, are you kidding me? That's not honoring to the Lord. God doesn't want a grudging worshiper. He wants us to worship with joy and with gladness and with a willing heart. And that's what we're learning here in Psalm 100. It's because of the gospel that our worship ought to be filled with gladness. It's almost as if the psalmist is saying, if you don't want to be here, then just stay home. I feel like saying that sometimes to people in my congregation. You know, if I'm there and it's, we're worshiping or I get up to preach and I see people, you know, just <sighs> yawning and I got a couple of people in my church. You know, I, I got three sleepers in my church, by the way. Every time I get up to preach, I'm like, all right, I got these three people who, who are going to knock off at some point in the sermon. I got one guy who usually conks out right before the introduction is over. That's the early one. I'm like, man, I haven't got done with my introduction and he's out. I got another guy who makes it through the first point. And then I got another guy who makes it maybe about halfway through the sermon. And sometimes I just want to go up to the, you know, as a pastor, you see it all, right? I know who's sleeping. I know I'm watching you. It's okay. Sometimes, sometimes I get sleepy in services too. That's why I became a pastor. That's part of why I became a pastor. I don't ever have to worry about falling asleep in the sermon anymore. It's such a great reason to be a pastor. You can stay awake through the whole sermon, right? But what I'm saying is this. We ought to be engaged in worship, and we ought to be there for the joy of others, and it's almost like the psalmist is saying again, if you don't want to be here, then just stay home, right? I, I want people who come to worship, and I would say God wants people who come to worship to be excited about it, right? To come in with a heart that's full of joy. I mean, you couldn't keep me away from God's house, like that ought to be the, the heart that we have, like I'm heading to worship, I'm here to praise my Savior who rent the heavens and came down. I'm coming to worship Him. Like I would walk a hundred miles to be together with other believers who are lifting high the name of Jesus. Like nothing can hold me back. That's the spirit by which we're being invited into this, this psalm of giving thanks. Now let's move on to our, our third duty of thanksgiving. Number three, come into His presence with singing with singing. You see, again, there at the second part of verse 2, come into his presence with singing. The command that is given in this verse is to come. This word for come can refer to bringing yourself. It can mean to approach or to enter or to arrive. And so how do you enter the presence of the Lord? How do you arrive at church? How do you approach God? Well, God invites you to worship him. God wants you in his presence. He delights in your fellowship. He is glorified in your communion with him. That's the privilege of worship. Sinners that we are, rebels that we have been, God loves you anyway. 
And through Christ, he has made you new. And now he invites you into his house. He invites you to worship. We are undeserving. We are unworthy. And we have nothing to offer. And yet he invites us in and he commands that we praise him. You know, most of us will never get an invitation to the White House or to meet the president in the Oval Office. Most of us will never have an opportunity to dine with the Queen of England. Most of us will never meet a dignitary or a celebrity of that level. But you know what? All of us are invited to something far greater. All of us are invited to something grander. We have the privilege through Christ to enter into the presence of Almighty God. I mean, how wonderful is that? And when you woke up this morning, the living God was inviting you in. He says, come into my presence. I mean, what a blessing. And maybe that's why the psalmist says, I was glad. Just the invitation itself to be in God's presence ought to lift our spirits today. This ought to make us rejoice. And in the second part of verse 2, God is saying, I want you to come, but when you come, I require one thing of you, come into my presence with what? With singing. It's something that he requires of us. This is a divine invitation here, but it's also a divine command. You know, some people are like, well, I'm not really here for the worship, I'm just here for the word. You know, we have people like that sometimes in our church. You know, they're just like, well, I don't really care about the music and the worship wars, whether we do him. Just give me the preaching. In fact, a lot of times we show up that way, right? Well, they're just going to be doing announcements and songs for a while. I'll show up when the preaching starts. That's the real worship. I mean, in one sense, I agree, all right? I'm, I'm a preacher, right? We love expository preaching. But in another sense, I'm like, no, uh-uh. It's all worship. It all has value. It all has a place and in this psalm, you can't get away from the fact God said, hey, come on in. Come on in, and I want you to sing to me. I want you to lift your voices to heaven. It's not an option, at least in this psalm, right? We ought, we ought not to just rush into God's presence with questions or complaints or requests. In this verse, God says, you ought to come into my presence with joy and with gladness and with singing, like singing songs of praise. And I know, I know what you're thinking, you're thinking, well, what if I can't sing? I mean, what if that's just not my thing? You know, what if your song sounds like that movie Elf, right? Where I'm singing, and I'm singing about you're my dad, and I'm so happy to meet you. Remember that little part of the movie Elf, right? And so you think, well, I can't sing, so it's just not big on my list. What if I don't sound good? I would say to you, well, you see, that's just the problem. The problem is, it's all about you. It's all about you evaluating your interest, your desire, and your ability. You're too focused on yourself instead of being focused on him. You're too focused and too worried about what makes you feel comfortable instead of you fulfilling your duty. You know what I think? I think that people who are happy sing even when they can't sing. And I think that people with joy make a joyful noise spontaneously and out of devotion to the greatness of our God. And I think that people who are moved move their lips to obey the Lord's bidding that we come into his presence with singing. The point isn't how good of a singer you are, but how good of a God he is. 
So I would say, biblically, you don't have the right to say, well, singing is just not my thing. No, it's a command. He invites you in and commands you, Psalm 95, 2, let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. It's Psalm 96, 1 and 2. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. It's Ephesians 5.19 that we are to be addressing one another in psalms and in hymns and in spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. It's not about you, it's about him. Sing to him a new song. Enter into his courts with praise. Tell him that you love him through song. Join the heavenly chorus. Sing to him an anthem of praise. A fourth duty of giving thanks specified in this psalm is to know, number four, know that the Lord is God. Look at verse three. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. There is a fourth command here in this verse and it's the command to know. It's more than just being joyful. It's more than being glad. It's more than singing. It's also about knowing. To worship is to ascribe worth. But how can we ascribe worth to a being that you do not know? The psalmist is saying that if you are going to worship God rightly, then you need to know him fully. And this is not just an intellectual knowledge or a theological awareness. This is a knowledge that changes you. This is a knowledge that leads you to wisdom. This is a knowledge that gives you discernment. This is a knowledge that can only be revealed to you by the omniscient God. We are to know that Yahweh is a covenant-making God who never breaks his promises. He has a steadfast love for his own which never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. This is God. And that word for God there, when it says he is God in verse 3, that's the word for God, Elohim, which emphasizes that God is the ultimate ruler and judge. This reveals his majesty and his divine power. He has the whole world in his hands. Do you know that this morning? Do you know this God? He is the one and the true and the living God. There is no one holy like the Lord. Do you know him today? Exodus 20, verse 3, You shall have no other gods before me. Deuteronomy 6, 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory. I will not give to another, nor my praise to carve idols. I mean, do you know this God today? Because it is only those who know this God who can come into his presence with this kind of worship. He is not a God of our own making, but he is creator God who made us. Look here in the middle of verse 3, it's he made us. So we are his. He, notice, he made us. We did not make him. God is the creator. It is he who made us and we are his. He created us. We wouldn't be alive apart from him. He is God and we are not. And he created us in his image. He created us to have a relationship with him. He created us to have fellowship with him. He created us to glorify him. 
we did not evolve. This is our cultural, culture's problem with creationism. If, if God created us, and if we give in to creationism, the culture thinks, well, then that means we have an authority over us. And that would be correct, right? If God created us, then we have to answer to him. If God created us, then he makes the rules. If God created us, then we are his subjects. And that's exactly what he did. He made us to know him and to love him and to submit to him and to bring glory to him. But fallen man doesn't want to acknowledge that we are his. Fallen man doesn't like the thought of a creator because it means we have an authority higher than us and we have to answer and give an account to that authority. And so we are so determined to be our own God that we would rather believe that we evolved from a monkey than to believe in an intelligent being who fearfully and wonderfully made us by his own creative power. I mean, I know that monkeys are pretty intelligent, but I was on a safari earlier this week, and I'm telling you, monkeys are kind of dumb also. All right? I mean, if you ever sit there and watch two monkeys groom each other and then eat whatever it is they're picking off the other one, I'm just like, that's just wrong. I mean, that's just plain out nasty. Right? So I, I'm not going to give in to the world's view that we evolved from a monkey. We understand that's not what the Bible teaches. So in many ways, we could say there is only one difficult verse in the Bible, and that's Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You say, well, Adam, what's so hard about that verse? Because if you really believe that verse, you will have no problem believing any other verse in the Bible. If that verse is true, then it's all true. And yes, I believe that God made a fish, a big fish, swallow up a man and then regurgitate him where he went and preached in Nineveh. And I believe that God shut the mouths of lions to prevent them from harming Daniel. And I believe that God stopped the sun and made it stand still so that Joshua could finish off the Amorites. And can I tell you why I believe it? It's because if God created it all, then he controls it all. Get that? If he created it all, he controls it all. He controls the seas, and he controls the winds, and he controls the events on the world stage. And before you get too big for your britches, maybe you need to re be reminded this morning that he controls you. He controls everything that's happening in your world. He controls everything about you because he made you, and you are his. And what I'm saying to you this morning is that's good news. That's comforting news. That's the kind of news that reassures me that, that there's, there's a purpose to life, and that's to glorify him. He made us, and we're his. And then he says at the end of verse 3 that we are his sheep. We're his people and his sheep. God, God takes care of what belongs to him. How does God take care of his own? By reminding us that we are his people and his sheep. This reminds us that God is the great shepherd, and we are his sheep. We are in his world, or we are in his pasture. Sheep cannot feed themselves. Sheep cannot care for themselves. Sheep cannot adequately protect themselves. Sheep need a shepherd, and we have a good shepherd in Jesus, which is why John 10, 11 says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. It was King David who said in Psalm 23 that the Lord is my shepherd. 
meaning that I know what he's done for me. He's my shepherd, and because he's my shepherd, I shall not want. Everything I need, my shepherd provides. And when I get hungry, he makes me lie down in green pastures. When I get thirsty, he leads me beside still waters. And when I stray away, he restores my soul. And when I don't know which way to go, he leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And when I am in the dark valley, I will fear no evil because my shepherd is with me. His rod and his staff, they comfort me no matter what you're going through. You can count it all joy when you see the goodness and the greatness of God. Do you know this shepherd today? Not just do you know about him, do you know him? Do you have intimate knowledge? Do you know him? Have you acknowledged that he is God? Is he the shepherd of your soul? A fifth imperative we see in Psalm 100 is number five, enter his gates with thanksgiving. That's verse four. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. Really, the idea behind the first part of verse 4 is that you come to God with a sacrifice. The word thanksgiving could also be translated enter his, um, where it says that uh, you should enter um, his um, gates with thanksgiving. That word thanksgiving could be translated as a thanks offering. You get that? In other words, when you enter his presence, you've you got something to bring with you. You have something in your hands and we see this in Psalm 66, 13, I will come into your house with burnt offerings. Psalm 116, 17, I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving. And so this sacrifice is not meant to pay God back for something that he's done. It, it, there's a free admittance fee into heaven. The price of admission is free based on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on your behalf, but the idea here is that God gave up his son as a sacrifice, then at the same way, we should sacrifice something when we come into his presence. Maybe it's a gift that you put in the offering plate. Maybe it's your body as a living sacrifice as you come to worship. You say, here I am, Lord. Take me and use me any way that you want. I'm here. I'm yours. I belong to you. I would say in one sense, he wants nothing but our hearts and our, our obedience. But in another sense, he's magnified by the sacrifices that we make. As the writer commands us to be thankful, he orders us to approach God with grateful praise. Pilgrims are to enter the gates of the city of Jerusalem and the courts of the temple. And this is the verse, by the way, where we get that old hymn, I say old, it's uh, sung a lot in my childhood. I will enter his gates with thanksgiving in my heart. I will enter his courts with praise. I will say this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice for he has made me glad. That comes from this psalm, from this verse. Unfortunately, far too often, and it's not how we enter church. This is often not how we enter into worship. How do we enter into worship sometimes? Well, we come to worship exhausted because we were up too late last night. We, we come to worship frustrated with what's going on at school. And we drag ourselves into worship and we sit there with our arms folded and with a scowl on our face that says, don't talk to me. I haven't had my coffee yet. You know, I haven't got my worship on yet. And we come into worship like this sometimes on a Sunday morning and, and it's, it's difficult sometimes for us to get in the mood. And, I, and I'm saying there's a problem with that. Right? Maybe the reason you don't enter his gates with thanksgiving is that you don't want to be in the presence of a holy God. 
Maybe you're chasing or cherishing some sin in your life. And frankly speaking, this morning, maybe you adore your sin more than you adore God. But Jesus told us that we cannot serve two masters. You'll hate one and love the other. You cannot serve both God and your sin. And it may well be that if you are cherishing that sin, even if you are a believer today, you've been robbed of the joy of the Lord and you are hiding in darkness. If that's you this morning, I call you out of your son. It may be the whole point that you're saying, well, man, I'm not too excited about worship. I don't get too joyful in there. It's because you're harboring sin in your life. And when you confess that sin, you know, the Bible says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Then you're able to come into his presence and to turn back to Christ, to come out of the darkness and into the light. Are you glad to be here today? Are you glad to be in his presence on any given day? Let me give you a sixth imperative that we are to give thanks to him. Again, the end of verse 4 says that we enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. So when we enter the presence of the Lord, we ought to be filled with gratitude. We ought to be giving thanks in all circumstances. We ought to be giving thanks always and for everything for what the Lord has done. We ought to just be a thankful people. You know, what I found is I'm, I tend to be a complaining person, especially after traveling to Uganda on Ethiopian air. Don't fly Ethiopian air, right? I was stuck on a plane for 20 hours without getting out. I don't like Ethiopian air. <laughs> but you know what? That's a complaining spirit, right? And it's like, we ought to just be thankful. I'm thankful for it. The plane got me there. We didn't crash and burn. There was no terrorist hijacking of the cockpit. I was fed a few meals on the plane. So the, the problem is, again, we're not giving thanks to God for all circumstances. I would say maybe even this Thanksgiving, you ought to focus on, that's why I love this holiday, because you know what, sometimes Christmas, because of our culture and the commercialism, it's like, what am I going to get for Christmas this year? Oh, my kids are already making their Christmas lists. Dad, I want, I want, I want. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, part of that's fun and exciting, but the reason I love Thanksgiving is no commercialism. Have you noticed that? By the way, we just go straight from Halloween costumes in the stores to Christmas trees. It's like Thanksgiving doesn't exist. But I love Thanksgiving because it's a biblical concept and principle of where it's not about what am I going to get, but it's what can I give? How can I give thanks to God? How can I have that kind of heart to give thanks to him? Maybe this Thanksgiving week when you're with your family, you'll just focus on, I just want to make this week a week of thankfulness. And I want to thank my mom and thank my dad and thank my siblings and thank my friends for, for everything that they've done for me. I want to have that kind of mindset. You know, where I grew up in the South, I was born and raised in Georgia, my mama taught me that if somebody does something nice for you, that the least that you could do is say thank you. Now, I appreciate that upbringing, the mindset is we ought to give thanks in all things and at all times. We ought to say thank you. One final exhortation about giving thanks is this. Number seven, bless his name. The end of verse four, bless his name. And verse five, for the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. Let me just say in verse five, 
here's three things that you can uh, bless his name for. Number one, you can bless his name because he is good. Number two, you can bless his name because he is loving. And number three, you can bless his name because he is faithful. You see that in verse five. You can be thankful, you can bless his name, bless the Lord, bless his name. Why? Because he's good, he's loving, and his faith, he is faithful. That's the kind of God that we serve. We have a God who invites us in this morning into the place of worship. Have you tasted this heavenly gift of God? You ought to praise him because his steadfast love endures forever. That word steadfast is translated in the NASB as loving kindness. It's translated in the NIV as unfailing love. It's translated in the King James Version as mercy. The various versions don't know how to translate this word hesed. Right? It's the loving kindness, the faithfulness of the love of God. That ought to make us thankful this morning. And so let me ask you, have you entered into his courts? Are you a Christian today? Are you excited about each and every chapel and each and every service and each and every moment that you can worship him? An African-American pastor told a story about a woman in his church. Every week she prayed the same prayer. Oh, Lord, thank you, Jesus. Every week that was her prayer. Oh, Lord, thank you, Jesus. Kids laughed because they knew that every time she was going to pray, she was going to say the same thing. Oh, Lord, thank you, Jesus. And somebody finally asked her, why do you pray the same little prayer? And she said, well, I'm just combining the two prayers I know. She said, we live in a bad neighborhood, and some nights there are bullets flying, and I have to grab my daughter and hide on the floor, and in that desperate state, all I know to cry out is, oh, Lord. But when I wake up in the morning and see that we're okay, I say, thank you, Jesus. When I got to take my baby to the bus stop, this lady said, and she gets on the bus, and I don't know what's going to happen to her while she's away, I cry, oh, Lord. And then when 3 p.m. rolls around and that bus arrives and my baby is safe, I say, thank you, Jesus. She said, those are the only two prayers I know. And when I get to church, God has been so good. I just put my two prayers together. Oh, Lord, and thank you, Jesus. I appreciate that reminder this morning. I hope that over this Thanksgiving that you would focus on worshiping and serving the Lord with joy and gladness, that you would enter into his presence with thanksgiving and with praise, and that you would say, oh Lord, and thank you, Jesus, throughout this holiday season and throughout your entire life. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the reminder here in this psalm of how we want to have a, a, a heart of thanksgiving. God, I know it's a special focus in our culture around this American holiday, but help us to see so much greater that it's a biblical concept, and it's our duty to praise you, and it's our duty to give thanks, and it's our duty to worship. And in that duty, God, I pray that you would make it a delight, that we would truly come with gladness, and that we would erupt in authentic praise. We could say to you, oh Lord, you've been so faithful through all of my life, and we could also say, thank you, Jesus, for dying for my soul, for raising me from the dead, and for sanctifying me every moment of every day and showing me what really matters in this life. May we learn a little bit more about what it means to worship you and to give you thanks.
And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.